Hey guys, it's Heaven from Just a Grown True Crime, and today I'm going to be telling you about this app called Anchor. It helped me start my podcast, and it can help you start yours. Anchor is a free app that lets you use it from your phone or your computer. So if you want to do it on the go, and you want to just record, you can record one. Anchor will also distribute your podcast for you on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and so much more to get your own podcast out there. You can make money from your own podcast with no minimum listenership. So it's everything you want in just one podcast. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. I did. What are you waiting for? All right, guys. Hi, guys. It's Heaven from Just a Girl in True Crime. I'm so sorry I've not uploaded in a while. I actually had some family things going on. And it's just been chaotic with the snow and with what I was dealing with my personal life. But I have a podcast episode for you tonight. Um, it is the murder of Kenzie Hook and her unborn child. I actually found this video on um, a Facebook watch um, video by Kendall Ray. And actually I was hooked because I have the same feelings, the same feelings that she has about it because it it's just a wild case and it doesn't make sense but I'm gonna hold my opinions till the end and I just want to hop in on this today okay so we're just gonna hop right into it on the morning of February 20th in 2009 Chris Brown was running a little late for work not not the rapper Chris Brown I had to put that because it was just so funny no not that Chris Brown, guys. As you all know, I'm pretty sure. Um, but he was running late. And you know what? That just happens to the best of us. We all have been there. I remember waking up um, for school late because I'd go back to sleep or I'd, like, take naps. Like, when I got home when I was so tired and I'd wake up at, like, 6 p.m. And I'd look at my clock and my phone and think it's, like, 6 a.m. And I'd run around the house going, oh, my God, I'm late for school. And I was never late, and I'd be like, oh yeah, it's PM, dummy. But, yeah, we've all been there. Don't say you haven't. So, it was a frigid, a fridge day, frigid, sorry, day in Wampapuma, Wampapum, something like that. That sounds fun, Wampapum, in a small town in western Pennsylvania. And fun fact, I'm from Pennsylvania, so that's pretty cool that I did a Pennsylvania case. Um, Chris said his fiance Kenzie, who was eight and a half pregnant, eight and a half months pregnant at the time, had asked him to stay home that day, but he ended up saying he couldn't, and he just decided to go into work. He ended up telling 2020 that that decision is something that haunts him because he just didn't stay. Chris and Kenzie had known each other since they were teenagers and were planning to be married soon. This was their first baby together and it actually was a boy and they had planned on naming him Christopher. She was thrilled. That's what she wanted. Kenzie's mother, Debbie, told 2020. The clothing was washed. The bed was all ready, the diapers were, were 
were where they were supposed to be and just everything was in place and ready to go. The two of them plus... So it was the two of them plus Chris's 11-year-old son, Jordan Brown, and Kenzie's two daughters, Janessa, who was seven years old at the time, and her four-year-old daughter, Adeline, um, and they were from her previous relationships, just like Chris's son. And they actually had already moved in um, to a farmhouse together. So the blended family seemed to have already be like bonding. Everything was going good. Jordan said he and Kenzie even had a strong, rela strong relationship. And he even called her mom. She was really nice. I liked her a lot, Jordan told 2020. I was happy about the baby. I always wanted a little brother, and it was a boy. So that's what I was going to get. Kenzie was a hairstylist and a stay-at-home parent. Or not, yeah, like stay-at-home parent. Um... She was sleeping downstairs at the time, which was going to be Jordan's room after the baby was born. And Jordan had a bedroom upstairs. And since they said, like, hey, after, you know, after the baby, you can just move downstairs. So he moved his clothes from his upstairs bedroom to his downstairs bedroom. And on the morning, like I said, of February 20th, February 20th, 2009, Jordan said it was just a normal morning. He was getting ready for school. His sister, Janessa, woke him up, said Jordan. He went downstairs and got his clothes, went into the bathroom, and then got dressed. And him and Janessa then just ended up sitting on the couch in the living room, waiting, um basically for Ken waiting for them to leave to go to school and then Kenzie told them they had to go because the bus was coming so they hurried up and they ran out the back door and they ran down the driveway to catch the bus and I read that it that they left at like approximately 8 15 in the morning to catch the bus to go to school and then at 9 a.m um tree trimmers came and arrived at the house I think I read for them to like cut branches off of a tree or something like that and then shortly after one of the tree trimming worker people um spotted the four-year-old Adeline in the doorway sobbing and saying her mother was dead the worker called 911 and when the Pennsylvania State, I put parole because I think that's what it said, but I'm pretty sure it's not parole. Like when the state police or whatever came, Corporal, Corporal Jeffrey Martin, now retired, says he was one of the first responders on the scene. Um, they found Kenzie in the bedroom and he said he thought at first she had a medical emergency and then. At that point, they assumed 
She somehow had hemorrhaged, and that's what Martin told 2020. They didn't touch her. They didn't move her. At that point, they were just trying to maintain the integrity of the scene. It wasn't until the coroner arrived and he started, he or she, I'm sorry, I don't know if it was a guy or girl, they started taking photos, Martin said, and that's when they realized something, it was like something else. Um, Martin was standing at the edge of the doorway and I remember, and he remembered the coroner saying, as he touched the body, he, the coroner said, we have a problem. And that's when they discovered that it was actually a homicide. The police determined that Kenzie had been shot in the back of the head. They attempted CPR, but it was too late. Homicide is something of this magnitude that was very, very uncommon, Martin said. In my 25 years, I can't believe it was the only one in the area I can remember. Shortly after, they ended up calling Chris, who was already at work that morning, in the shipping department of a tableware company. Um, they told him, you know, you need to come home right away. So he came home, and when he arrived home, they told him that Kenzie and... The baby were gone and Chris says he just remembers collapsing in the yard and that is what Chris told ABC News um, to a person named Juju Chang. State Police Corporal Tony Stein Henzer now retired interviewed Chris at the state police barracks. Um, Chris's hands were swabbed for gunpowder residue, and they came back clean. So they were able to rule him out as a suspect pretty quickly, saying, yeah, he like he told them, I was late for work, and they did everything they needed, and they were able, like I said, to rule him out. So while police were talking to Chris, officers went to Mohawk elementary school i mean mohawk elementary i mean that just sounds like a cool elementary school to go to um but two officers went to the elementary school and spoke to janessa and jordan both children were interviewed and according to police neither said anything out of the ordinary had happened that morning however jordan did say he remembered seeing a black truck near the garage and he said he didn't think anything of it you know it was just a truck he told 2020 i thought you know it was just some guy doing work there or something so he thought it was like a worker's truck so that's probably why he didn't really mention it oh hold on but that's what he told them. Later that night, as Chris and Jordan started nodding off around like 3, 3.30, they heard a pounding on their door. Um, and it was the police. 
they ended up actually having an arrest warrant for Jordan. And Jordan says all he can remember is that they came at three, they put him in the back of the car, and they took him to the police barracks. And he was there. They took me, they took, not me, I'm sorry. (laughs) That's how I wrote in my notes. They took him straight to county jail, and he had no idea where he was going. He wasn't with anybody. It was just a bunch of strangers dragging him around. Just 18 hours before Chris had lost his fiance and unborn child, now he was also losing his son. The rest of the of Jordan, who, mind you, he was only 11 years old, for murder quickly gained a wide atten- a wide media attention and suddenly wampa wampu uh, wampa wampama pa in wampa pa a town with a population of roughly like 600 people had millions of eyes on this case the mugshot of Jordan Brown, um, that sort, it kind of like became like an icon of the story spread across the world, um, said Pittsburgh-based ABC affiliate WTAE reporter Bob Mayo. When his mugshot was taken, Jordan said he had been crying the whole night with him Being a fifth grader at the time, he said he didn't understand what he was being accused of, which is understandable because you're 11. You you don't know much about that. Um, He didn't know where he was. He didn't know what was going on or anything, he also said. Um, Police said what really turned the case for them was they did additional interviews that they conducted on Janessa and Jordan on the night of the murders. When they inter- when they interviewed someone, you expect them to give their account, wait a little bit, wait a little bit while they interview them again, and they should give, like, basically, like, the same thing that happened... And um, Martin said he didn't know what happened in the case. Um, But the police said, in fact, Jordan's second interview had changed. Um, He changed the description of the black truck. And he added that there was a person inside with a hat ducking down in the truck. And when they re-interviewed Janessa, police said that she had a startling recollection. And police said that she told them she saw Jordan moving his guns that morning. She then told them that when she was waiting downstairs for Jordan to come down and wait with her to go to school like they normally do, she heard a big boom and she identified it as a sound of a gun, added the retired Pennsylvania State Police Trooper 
Bobby McGraw. Um, Jordan denied to 2020 doing anything with his guns that morning, saying he never touched them. Martin said the autopsy report determined that Kenzie had been killed with a shotgun and she had a single gunshot wound to the back of her head, like I said already. Um, he also said, Martin, I have never expected to have the murder weapon to be, basically to be a shotgun. Um, he said it's more of a weapon of opportunity. It's not a weapon that someone's going to carry across the field or carry across, like, not across, like, up a driveway because it's so big. It, he said it was, like, three, three feet long. So, I mean, that would kind of be hard to hide that. Um, so, when they went into the Browns' house... The police had found a collection of handguns, rifles, and several rounds of ammunition. They also found a 20-gauge shotgun that belonged to Jordan. Investigators on the case told 2020 that in a I'm gonna rural royal not royal rural royal I'm sorry area of PA. That it's fairly common, especially young males, would grow up learning to shoot firearms. We had a youth model shotgun in the house that had smelled like it had recently recently been fired, Martin said. But he added that Jordan's hands were never checked for gunpowder residue. Which is very weird to me, but I promise I'm going to hold all my comments at, till the end. Police said they also found a 20-gauge shotgun shell casing in pristine condition next to the family's driveway that next day. Trooper McGraw believed Jordan threw the shell on the ground as he was walking to the bus the morning of the murders. He kept talking about a piece of fuzz and he got out of his pocket and he just threw it. Um, that's what um, McGraw said, Jordan said also, I guess. Um, McGraw also said, in his opinion, he was focused on the shock, shotgun shell casing that he threw after. He left the residence. So McGraw was basically saying like, yeah, he was he was focused on this. Um, they only found gunshot residue on Jordan's clothing. While Jordan was awaiting trial, Jordan was housed for three years at the Edmund L. Thomas Adolescent Center in Erie County, PA. His father, Chris said he drove every day 230 miles round trip to see his son at the center. He said he needed to drive four hours every day to visit Jordan because he was his son. I get that because I go to 
I get that because I'd go to hell and back for my kids. And I'd do anything for them hands down. So I definitely get that. I don't care how long it was. I don't care if it was across the country. I'm driving if my kids needed me. Jordan said those visits were actually like a lifeline. Um, He doesn't know what he would have done without them. They were really, they were really helping him like get through this for whatever he, what he was going through and he didn't understand. He said they played a big role in like keeping his head on straight. He also said the daily journey, however, um, wreaked havoc on his finances. Chris said it cost him his job and what money that he had coming in went to uh, gas in the tank and went to the things that Jordan needed, Chris said. And with the focus on his son's legal pilot, um, Chris also said, his um, grief for the loss of his fiance and their unborn baby had to take a back seat. Um, Chris also said that he really hadn't had the chance to grieve properly. As the years passed, Jordan said he spent much of his time absorbed in books his father had brought him, reading with a dictionary next to him. Jordan said if he would read something and he came across a word that he didn't know, he would look it up. That way, he would know what was being tried, what was, what was trying to be said, and that's how he read. So he was like teaching himself big words that he didn't know, and he would just look it up and be like, "Okay, so this is what they mean by that." Um, he Jordan also was a big fantasy reader, and he said it was a whole different world. He'd like to lose himself in the book. Um, time flew when you were reading so he was it was good like it's not it sucked that he was like in there but it was good like he was staying busy and he was just trying to keep his mind off things so throughout jordan staying in the detention center in erie his father continued to ask him whether he killed kenzie um, Chris said, you know, he gave him every opportunity. I'd say, Jordan, listen, if something happens, accidents happen, buddy. You know, if something happened, tell me. I'm not going to be mad at you. I'm your dad. I'm never not going to be your dad. I'm never not going to be here every day, Chris said. And you know what? Kudos to Chris for saying that because you, in the heat of the moment, you want to know the truth and your son's being accused of like this heinous crime and you know you're just trying to like you're trying to be there for him but you're also trying to be like well let me see if he'll open up to me you know and he just like would tell him like you know what I just said what Chris said to Jordan accidents happen but no matter what I will always be here I'm I'm still going to be your dad at the end of the day. 
I love you no matter what. Um, but Chris did say he never changed his story. He said, you know, he maintained his innocence from day one, which is good. So more than two years after um, he was finally charged and a judge ruled that his case would be moved from adult from adult to juvenile court. It was actually, but it was actually another eight months before Jordan would stand trial for the double homicide. Now, when it finally came for Jordan, for Jordan's trial, it only lasted for three days, despite the investigators' belief that Janessa's statements to police were compelling, incredible, Prosecutors made the decision not to introduce them at trial, nor did she testify. Which I found a little weird because, you know, you have a statement from a witness saying this is what she heard and everything like that. I mean, I'm not no, like, detective or anything, but I can't help but wonder when I was doing this case, wouldn't you, um... Wouldn't you want to put that in your trial? But they, but they didn't. I mean, that, that's just weird to me. Still, a juvenile court judge found Jordan, um, who is now 14, uh, a delinquent in the case. Um, so a judge finding a delinquent, a juvenile delinquent is effectively a guilty verdict in juvie court, I guess. I didn't know that, I'll be honest. So it's saying, it's saying that I have char, I have a charge in front of me in juvenile court and I'm finding that you are responsible for that crime. ABC News chief legal analyst Alan Abrams said, I can remember just looking at Jordan and feeling like we had failed him. And it's just, and just feeling so sorry for him. And that, and at that moment, Jordan's lawyer, Steve Kofella, told ABC News. And he just remembers thinking, how can this kid have more hope because you know he's been in this for he's been locked up and everything for so long how can he have more hope the judge basically found him guilty oh I and I could not imagine so Jordan who like I said had been in custody throughout the whole investigation and trial was eventually sent to George Jr. Republic Juvenile Detention Center in Grove um, Grove City, PA. While Jordan was incarc- incarcerated, he taught himself to play guitar, and he said he became a pretty good basketball player, which, no, good for Jordan for trying to stay busy. I wish I could teach myself guitar because that's awesome. Um, Jordan had spent seven summers in detention and was released 
when he turned 18 in 2016. Jordan's lawyers had also filed a notice of appeal two months after he was convicted. And eight and a half years after his arrest, Jordan's case was heard by the Supreme Court last November. And in July of 2018, the court ended up siding with Jordan, writing that the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania had failed to prove Jordan Brown guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. In a rare move, the highest court in Pennsylvania ruled that there was insufficient evidence to prosecute the case. I was happy. Finally, it felt like a big weight had been lifted off of me. It's been a nightmare for nine and a half years, said his father, Chris. I'm a hundred percent, you know, a whole clean slate. Everything is gone, and that made me happy. Finally, the truth had finally gotten out, Jordan said. So this what I'm reading now like is what like his dad and him are basically saying in a couple lawyers when they when um I'm assuming reporters it didn't say who but I would assume reporters um when they ended up asking what message he had for the state troopers who had arrested his son Chris told them this shame on you is probably the most polite way to put it. You took an 11-year-old an 11-year-old's childhood away from him. You ruined his name in essence. I mean, you googled Jordan Brown and get that mugshot picture that pops up, he said as well. Um, Jordan said he had mixed feelings about what was happening to him. And, you know, that's understandable because, you know, you've been in de a detention center since you were 11 years old and you weren't released until you were 18 after so long. So I get the, I get the mixed feelings like that would definitely be hard. Um, Jordan also said it used to bother him all the time. He used to hate it, but then it got to a point where it didn't bother him at all and he didn't care. But now... He goes back and forth sometimes, I think, he said. Chris says he actually suffers from PTSD over this whole situation, which I get because, you know, post-traumatic, you know, post-traumatic, oh my god, I'm missing the other one. Y'all know what I mean, PTSD. Man, I lost my place. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I, I get the PTSD. Um, He also said it's kind of like a bittersweet feeling. He's happy that this part is over with Jordan. But with him, like, being wrongly accused. Um, But a part of him is still suffering from the loss of... Of his fiance and unborn and actually not having like the full answers and just knowing like that his son at the end of the day was like he says falsely accused of this crime 
and the route prosecutors and investigators took on this, the inadequate investigation, he thinks it just ruined them from ever having closure. And the person who did this could potentially, you know, still be out there. And they're still walking, you know, free. And Chris believes that they should pay for it, which I agree. There's a murderer walking among us and that it has been overlooked, Chris said. Um, A retired PA state police trooper, Bobby McGuire, who I've mentioned plenty of times in the podcast in this episode, um, who is, like I said, one of the investigators in the case, said he is confident that Jordan actually did commit the murders. Um, The case was investigated by some of the finest police officers in this in this um, country, plain and simple. None of them wanted to put handcuffs on an 11-year-old, but that's where the case led them. I have never looked back that we arrested the wrong person, in my opinion. And I would assume every trooper who investigated that case feels the same way. We did not get this wrong, McGraw told ABC News. There's not one trooper on the scene that that has lost a day of sleep over this case. So, you know, people are probably thinking, you know, what's Jordan doing now? Well, Jordan is actually, he's actually um, attending college and he is studying computer science and is determined to leave his past behind him and prepare for brighter for brighter days ahead and you know what i say go for it jordan because you definitely deserve it for all the shit that you have been put through and all of this crazy stuff that happened to you when you're 11 year old 11 years old you definitely deserve you know just to move forward because you don't want to live in the past and he's been through so much already Um, He just wants to graduate college um, and get a job in the major that he studied. And he said, I don't know, you know, be successful. And that's what Jordan's looking forward to. Um, Chris, his dad, says his biggest hopes for him probably is that he gets a fair shake moving forward. That, you know, people look at this and for what it is. And what it truly is, Chris said. He also, um, assuming, it didn't say that he said this, but I'm assuming he said this. He said, read that Supreme Court order and realize that this kid was done wrong. And, you know, that's the case of Kenzie Hook, 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 and um, her unborn child being murdered. Rest in peace, Kenzie, and rest in peace, their baby. I'm just going to share my opinions with you guys. I think, you know, I think it's crazy. I mean, I definitely believe, like, I watched what Kendall Ray said, and after I watched it, I was like, yeah, you know what, that, that's pretty crazy. Um, But, you know, like she said, 
I find it hard for a child not to leave like any DNA. You know, they they didn't really find anything linking him other than okay, there was gun residue on his clothes. Okay, but you didn't te- you didn't test him for gun residue. Like you didn't do things like that you would do for like normal per Um I think I left out a part that I didn't write in my notes. Or I just, like, missed a page. Um, so I think if I'm, yeah, I think I, like, missed it in my notes or I missed a page. Um, Kenzie, I believe she was married um, to a guy that I can't remember, but I think she actually had, like, a protection order on him because he threatened to kill her and the family, so I definitely think, I think they looked into him, but they said they were able to rule him out. I had to rewrite these notes twice, that's why it also took me so long. Because I, like, found stuff and then missed it. So I think they should have looked into him. And they should have looked into, like, other people. Other than just pinpointing this 11-year-old at the same time. Um, Kenzie's parents or mom believe that Jordan did kill um, Kenzie and her unborn child because of a jealousy thing. And Jordan said he wasn't jealous about it. So I don't, I don't know. I find it hard that an 11 year old, if he did shoot his stepmom, he was able to like act normal, like the whole day in school because you know, like uh, kids are emotional and stuff like that. So I find that like hard that they're just like, yep, he did this and he was able to carry himself so well is beyond me. I personally don't think he did it. Because there's not a lot of facts and there's not a lot of evidence really pointing to Jordan. So I don't, I don't know who murdered Kenzie and her, her unborn baby. But my heart goes out to the family. And I hope they eventually like catch the killer. And I just hope Jordan and his dad, they can get peace and everybody can just really move on. As that being said, um, I'm going to upload a podcast Friday. Um, It's not going to be a true crime per se. It's going to be like a kind of like a short one. I have my and then I'm going to upload one on Saturday. That's where my big case is coming in. I'm not going to tell you guys. It's a secret. And everything. So Friday's podcast. Um. My coworker actually gave me an idea on this. Like, maybe like a little cult, like a little cult um, podcast and everything. And then you'll have, so you have today, which is um, Tuesdays. And then I'm going to upload one Friday and then you'll have one Saturday. So you'll have three this week. Um, I finally made a Facebook, a Facebook um, group for our podcast. 
Um, you can search that on Facebook at Just a Girl in True Crime. You can also follow me on Instagram at Just a Girl in True Crime. You can send me an email at Just a Girl in True Crime at gmail.com. Um, thank you guys so much for listening and being patient. Like I said, I've had some family stuff that I had to take care of. Um, but I do love and appreciate all of my listeners. And I hope you keep spreading the word to your friends and family to get our podcast out there. And you know, if you have a case you'd like me to cover, you can reach out to me on the Facebook, the Instagram, or the Gmail. I think my next step is probably going to be a Twitter and everything, but you know, we can so do um, request and everything, and it will just be great, and thank you all so much for sticking with me, you're awesome, and I will be seeing, not seeing, I always not. I will be looking forward to you guys listening to my next podcast on Friday.